and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we look at this month's policy focus entitled The Military Recruitment Crisis. The U.S. military is facing its greatest recruiting challenge in almost half a century with the Army, Navy, and Air Force falling short of their recruiting goals by thousands. So we're going to look at the reasons why, which include a broader societal disconnect that encompasses things like a lack of patriotism, love of country, and sense of shared values. And the author of this report, this policy focus is with us today. Megan Mobs is with us. She is an experienced non-governmental policy and political leader and serves as vice president for client strategies at Link. She is known for her research into understanding the unique psychosocial stressors of service during a time of war and is frequently published on this topic. She's a former paratrooper and combat veteran who serves on the board of multiple organizations dedicated to assisting service members in the transition to civilian life. Megan, it is an honor to have you on She Thinks today. Thanks, Beverly, for having me. I really appreciate it. And so first of all, thank you for your service. Um, we appreciate that. I think you're the perfect person to talk about this. And so I want to get into really where you started in the policy focus, which is discussing what the data really show. What are the current recruitment rates and how do they compare with pre previous decades? Yeah, absolutely. So Beverly, you kind of addressed this in your introduction, which I really appreciate, which is actually this is the biggest crisis we've seen in 50 years. And it is certainly the largest crisis we've seen since the advent of the all-volunteer force, meaning once we the draft you know dissolved and we no longer had that and we entirely focused on recruitment for an all-volunteer force, this is the largest deficit we've ever seen. And it is quite substantial. I feel like sometimes we look at these numbers and we say, well, they're going to fall short by 7%. And we can say to ourselves, well, is 7% all that much. When we're talking about the Army in particular, which is really where that 7% deficit is, that's quite substantial, especially given the fact that Army as a branch is oftentimes an enabler force for our other branches of the military. So Air Force, Marines, Navy, for example, they kind of act as an augmentee force, especially when doing combined arms operations. So the reality is these deficits are quite large and quite significant, which is going to pose a huge problem moving forward. And of course, the way warfare takes place has evolved. It now includes the tech side of things, such as cyber, artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. et cetera. Is the, the military recruitment issue maybe part of a natural extension of how warfare has changed? Do we really need the same amount of troops since so much is through technology? So absolutely. I think I think inherently we, we have this idea that technology removes a human element from warfare, but the reality is it couldn't be further from the truth. Even our, even our unmanned uh, systems require manned operators in order for them to, to function and for them to, to do the, the work that they need to do. So, so qualified participants, qualified folks running these weapon systems are going to be critical regardless of whether or not the technology evolves. Maybe we will eventually reach a level in which humans are not part of warfare, but I think we are extraordinarily far off from that goal. And the reality is with our kind of peer, near peer competitors with Russia and with China, they have substantial land forces. And so we are going to need people, actual Americans joining our armed forces. Now, it's always been a, a positive thing and something that's been encouraged for those who decide to get into the military to have a degree. Um, they want educated people. Is there a big push to find people who understand the tech side of things? And is that a hard role to fill? Since like you were saying, we, we have moved into cyber warfare, AI, et cetera. So absolutely. I mean, I, I think that it's actually kind of two kind of questions in there. And the reality is that we have a lot of service members who don't have degrees. And in fact, serving allows them to get education along the way. And so that's actually a benefit of the military or of military service is getting an education 
after or during your period of service. And it's quite an effective recruiting technique um, to utilize that. So we don't necessarily need someone who has a college degree, for example. Now we do have specialty or the military has specialty recruiting pipelines for those that have hyper-focused skill sets. So to your point, cyber, AI, kind of those really hyper-technological focuses, especially in the Air Force and the Navy, they do a good, good job of recruiting into those particular kind of subsets. But it's really kind of the broader focus of the military where we're really falling short, not necessarily in some of those subspecialties. And I want to let our listeners know that they can find this policy focus on IWF.org. So if you want more details, do go there. We'll mention at the end of this conversation as well. Uh, But before we get into some of the reasons why, because we are going to delve into that, I thought we should look at where our military readiness currently is, especially maybe even looking in comparison to China and Russia, where are their recruitment rates and how concerned should we be in the years to come if our recruitment rates stay where they are or even get worse. So I, I think that that is a, it's a hard comparison to make just by virtue of the fact that we are an all-volunteer force, that China and Russia can force conscription in ways that we can't here in the United States. So that makes it a little bit... <laughs> excuse me, I'm fighting a cold, a little bit of a challenge to really make it an apples to apples comparison. And as we're seeing in Russia, I mean, in, in Ukraine with the Russia army right now, they're not, they're not quite as formidable as we had probably anticipated or thought for a long period of time. But what makes them uh, dangerous, I would say, is the fact that they can mass conscript at a moment's notice, which we're seeing them do in Ukraine anyway. So they have zero problem throwing life and bodies at warfare, at a problem, and don't have the same kind of compunctions that we do in the West about the preservation of life. And in China, that that's a very different kind of problem set because they actually in some ways mandate some indoctrination, some military training starting very early, like in secondary school or high school, in which everyone has to learn drill, learn ceremony. And so there's this kind of buy-in into the military apparatus very early on that we don't have here in the United States. So I would say that the inherently the problem is is not just that the way they kind of but by they I mean China and Russia recruit it's that here at home we're having a substantial problem and we certainly don't and we shouldn't want the kind of tool sets they have in place to recruit in places like China and Russia do you think that the United States may get to a place where they do move from an all-volunteer force to actually um, mandating having a draft something in, in in that vein that they have to implement I think it would take an an absolute existential crisis for that to happen. So something pretty substantial and catastrophic for it to occur for us to move back. I think once we had, you know, the the dissolution of the uh, the draft and the movement into selective service, uh, I think that that kind of putting it would be putting the horse back in the barn in some ways by going to a draft or something like that. I think that what we may more likely see is kind of the substantial overhaul and push to include folks in the armed forces that maybe we wouldn't have previously by kind of doing waivers or doing age waivers, education waivers, things like that that we, we actually have done previously as we needed forces during Iraq and Afghanistan. So I think that's probably more likely, but I would say never count anything out if there is something truly catastrophic that threatens the America and the future of our country. Well, let's get into the reasons why we see this drop in recruitment. First of all, let's just start with the economics. Is there anything economically, for example, maybe we don't pay our troops enough, uh, pay our military service members enough? What are the economics of it? So I would say certainly that's an issue. That's kind of the, the big place that folks go when they begin to talk about the recruitment crisis is that one, like the job market in America in some places extraordinarily well. So so competing against the kind of economy of jobs outside of the military, um, 
it can be challenging. And so I think there is always going to be an argument that we should do a better job of, of paying for service, you know, paying service members um, what they deserve and, and what they, they should have compared to their uh, a, a potential civilian position. I mean, this is particularly true when you, get, you see a lot of service members talking about food insecurity, and that's a pretty substantial problem for the lower enlisted. So those that are young, really beginning their careers that may have families that maybe previously wouldn't have families, which is really where uh, pay scales were developed was when we weren't taking into consideration, folks may be married or have children early on in their, their career. And, and that's really where you see that discrepancy, that, that difference and where there may be problems economically. And something that you brought up in the policy focus, which I thought, first of all, is, is sad, but a very interesting and important thing to focus on. You're talking about our young people in society today. And we see due to COVID and other factors, more mental health issues, suicide um, thoughts, suicidal thoughts, also obesity issues. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at young people coming up, how important are those issues going to play a role in whether or not these would be recruits that we could even accept into the military? Well, so absolutely. I mean, that's kind of one of the hugest problems is the fact that our pool of young recruits is only about 23%. That is a catastrophic, and 23% that would qualify to serve in our armed forces. That is an extraordinarily no low number. And it's for all the reasons that you just mentioned, Beverly. So COVID exacerbated some already kind of emerging and rising mental health challenges. So certainly COVID exacerbated it. I certainly think that social media has a role to play in all of that, which is perhaps another policy conversation and focus. Um, but that's a portion of it. School closures certainly contributed to education, um, kind of robustness and the capability of passing the ASVAB, which is the test that you have to take to even be um, assessed into the military. So those two things certainly. And then COVID also exacerbated an already rising youth obesity crisis. So it rose from 19 to 22% during the pandemic, and it's only continuing to get worse. So those three factors, and then on top of that, a portion of Generation Z is just not even considering the military as an option. They're not interested, or it's not something that's even on their radar. And is that have to do with a lack of patriotism and just kind of taking us back to 9-11? So many people signed up because they wanted to serve the country after the tragedy of 9-11. Where is patriotism today among young people? And, and I assume part of what factors into this is if the United States is viewed or some teach that the United States is systemically racist, why would you want to put your life on the line for a country that's like that? So where are we on patriotism? So not great. I mean, it, and that and that is kind of the thrust of this argument, which is that patriotism and kind of the, the core values that unite us as Americans. There was a great study that was published in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago that looked at values that unite Americans. And one of them was patriotism. And when they first measured this, I think it was back in 1998 or so, really patriotism as a core American value was at 70%, which is very high. It currently today is 38%. So way less than a majority of Americans believe patriotism is important. And if you lose patriotism or the belief that your country is worth fighting for, worth serving and sacrificing for, well, then you actually, the, the kind of the crux of your problem isn't even necessarily related to things like education or obesity or mental health or the economy, though those certainly are factors. It's about the reality that people aren't willing to serve and sacrifice for their country. And that is a huge issue that's not even necessarily being talked about. And one of the things that also factors into what you were just mentioning is that the Department of D Defense has pushed diversity, equity, and inclusion training, so the DEI efforts. And it seems that they're pr prioritizing equity and inclusion over merit and the ability to do your job well as a military service member. How much of DEI inclusion has 
really hampered the ability of our military force to do its duty well. So I think, I mean, I would argue that any time that the, so the sole purpose of the military is to build effective teams, right? So that, yeah, there are certainly like lone operators that exist within the military apparatus. And certainly there are jobs that require operating individually or uniquely, but ultimately the military is about building teams. It's about building teams so those teams can fight effectively and win our nation's wars. That is the sole purpose of our military. Everything else is tangential. And so anytime I think that you're focusing on things that divide us rather than unite us, you're going to have a very difficult time building teams, building camaraderie, and uniting around a common purpose. So a lot of the DEI curriculum that we see, especially the type that's being used in the military, is really around that kind of divisive idea that, well, we're judged by our immutable characteristics, so our skin color, our gender, rather than what makes us unique as individuals, yes, but what those kind of characteristics allow us to bring to a team to further the efforts of that team. And so I think the other piece of all this that we often forget when speaking about diversity, one of the most effective types of diversity isn't actually anything related to our immutable characteristics, it's about cognitive diversity. So how we approach problems, how we solve problems, how we conceptualize problems, and that level of cognitive diversity is extraordinarily important and certainly not something that we're talking about. Well, and as you, oh, I'm sorry, Beverly, go ahead. You know, I was just going to say- I get very so excited talking about this. <laughs> now that we have the lay of the land of how dire some of this is, this isn't encouraging to this point, I want to know what the solutions are. So what, what can we do to try to improve our recruitment levels? Yeah, I think that that, I mean, my, the first thing that I would always say, and actually my, my father says this as well, something we kind of say in our family is like, never bet against America, never bet against Americans. That when push comes to shove, we are always going to show up, show up well, and we will fight and we will win. Um, so I think that I'm always encouraged by that. But the really kind of concrete things that we can begin doing is looking at things like civic education. So kind of necessarily during the 80s, during the Cold War, um, as we were looking at the Soviet Union and what they were doing with science and with technology, um, we realized we were really lagging behind in, in the kind of that area around science, technology, engineering, math. And so we kind of invest a substantial amount of research resources in order to bring us up to the level of the Soviet Union. So we are really trying to keep pace with them. And as a result, though, kind of over time, where we close that gap with the Soviet Union and all those dollars are being invested in STEM, we let civic education take a back seat. And when I say civic education, I really mean education around our nation, different branches of government, our constitution, why it matters, um, what's unique and exceptional about America. So I'm not talking necessarily even about a kind of a raw, raw America's great course. I mean, just the fundamentals about our nation and how it was established and why that's so incredibly important in the canon of world history. And because that civic education doesn't exist anymore in many places, I think there's only seven states that mandate or require a civic education course. We can do that. We can bring civics back again and really make it extraordinarily important as part of the overall education process for our youth. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start and important. I do encourage all of our listeners to take a look at this policy focus. It's on IWF.org. It is called The Recruitment Crisis. The author you just heard from um, is with us today. And of course, she put a lot of great information in there. Megan Mobs, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your work on this. Thanks, Beverly. It's great to be here. And thank you all for joining us. Before you go, IWF does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. And investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting IWF.org backslash donate. That's IWF.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or review. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She Thinks. From all of us here at IWF, thanks for watching.